Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together again this evening to meet us, to greet us, to feed us, to nourish us with your word. We pray that we be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We pray that your word would be effectual, accomplishing everything that you've set out for it to do this evening. We pray that you would conform us more and more to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. It's in his name and in your spirit that we pray. Amen. Well, please be seated, beloved, and turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Philippians. When I was in Loveland the last time I was preaching through the catechism, I tried to follow a a formula, a pattern that I thought would be good for God's people, particularly since they'd heard the catechism before, maybe to just take a little bit of a different approach to it, and I'd like to do that here this evening. And so all of my sermons really went through what the catechism said for like the first third of the sermon, and then a character in scripture that either positively or negatively reflects on that catechism question, and then how that points forward to Christ in one way or another. So three sections, if you will, the catechism, and then a character in scripture that addresses that positively or negatively, and then how it points forward to Christ. And so I'd like to do that this evening. I'd love your feedback on how you think that is as a format as well after the service, but we'll look at the catechism as we talk about envy, and then we'll look at a character, well, positive character, Paul, and then we'll look at the fulfillment in Christ. But when we think about envy... It's interesting to know that we have insatiable appetites for more, don't we? Most of us are never truly satisfied. Nelson Rockefeller, one of the richest men in the world, a tycoon at the day, was one time asked if he had enough or what would be enough, and he said, just a little more. Just a little more. And that seems like the case for us. We're often sizing people up and sizing ourselves up by measuring things, aren't we? how big something is, how new it is, how fast it is, the square footage of our houses, the acreage in our yards, how many degrees are behind our names, our address, where is it, how many cars or what cars do we have, the alma mater we went to, inches on our TV, our 401ks, our bank accounts, constantly just measuring and evaluating ourselves and measuring and evaluating ourselves against one another in some way. When I worked at Audi, In the marketing department, I was glad to work there uh, and delighted to work there. But there's an element of that that's trying to build into people a discontentment. You need a different car. You need a better car. You need a faster car. You need something else. We're kind of feeding discontentment. We're kind of encouraging discontentment so that you go out and buy our product. That's the essence of much, not all, marketing and advertising. Some of it's to inform and to fulfill an actual need, but a lot of it's to create a want or to create a desire or to make you dissatisfied with what you already have. Can we as Christians sing what we sing often, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. I'm content, I'm satisfied with the things that the Lord has given me. Can we do that? It's one of the things when we went through the Westminster Confession just a minute ago, or the Westminster Larger Catechism, reading it, it's really daunting, isn't it, to think about what we actually confess or mean by this. So let's look at what we're confessing in the Catechism, and then we'll look at the character of Paul, and then look at Christ. But let's hear what the Word of God has to say about this from Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4 through 
verse 17, verse 13, sorry. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, my brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And in particular, the verses we want to look at tonight. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So far, the reading of God's holy word. So when we think about the commandment, this 10th commandment, in some sense, it's really a summary of the whole law. Because most of our sin starts with envy in one way or another. You've probably heard the phrase gateway drugs before. That you start with a certain drug and it leads to another drug, another drug, and then you're getting in more serious drugs. Envy is a gateway sin. It's really something that's a gateway into a whole host of evil. And it's really one that's a kind of a private sin or a non-visible sin. People don't see you envying where they can see you act out in many of the other sins. But this is really something that addresses the heart, where the scripture focuses in and turns a lens on and puts a microscope on our heart. Is it wrong for us to want or desire things? Absolutely not. We're actually created in the image of God. We're desiring beings. It's good for us to desire things. We are created and made in the image of God who desires things as well. And we have a father who desires to even give us good things. We desire love, spouse, a companionship, profitable business, rest, peace, food, wine, all things worthy of desiring. But there's a limit to how we desire them or how we think about them. There's a book that we study in our counseling class at seminary that talks about good goods becoming bad gods. Even good things, a desire for good things, if done inordinately, too much, or putting too much desire upon them, or trying to go about getting them in an inappropriate way, then a good good becomes a bad God. Instead of desiring this thing in a way that can serve us well or allow us to serve others well, then we make it an idol. We are running after it at all speed, at all cost. You may have heard before about the four D's, or the progression of sin, that starts with a desire. I desire something, I want something, and it could even be for a good thing. I want peace and harmony in my relationship. I want to get good grades. I want a well-paying job. All reasonable and good things to desire. 
But if the desire then turns into a demand, I demand that job, I demand that spouse, I demand that opportunity, I demand that car. We've moved. And then that turns into a disappointment. I'm disappointed then I didn't get it. And then we start to damn others or damn God. It goes from a desire to a demand to a disappointment to damning behavior. Frustrated at God that he didn't give us everything we wanted. Frustrated at someone else that they didn't give us everything we wanted when we wanted it. The root of all this is covetousness. Why don't we rejoice for others? There's a conflict. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among us? Normally, we answer this with a what? Or someone else. Well, it's my spouse, or it's the government, or it's my pastor, or it's my church, or it's these policies. This is the problem. All these things outside of me. And I submit to you, they're the occasion for our sin, but not the cause of our sin. The cause of our sin, Scripture says, the cause of our sin, James says, is us, these desires. In James 1.14, it says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's really showing us that progression of where it starts, right? A good good can become a bad God. Relationally, is in the context of, uh, of the Ten Commandments as well. And not your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's ox, your neighbor's donkey, whatever. Can we rejoice and be happy that they have something? Even if it's something that we want or we don't have, can we rejoice and be happy for them? Can we weep with those who weep? Can we rejoice with those who rejoice? Are we happy when our neighbor, our brother and sister in Christ, when they get a raise, when they get a promotion, when they get a new house, when they get a TV or a new car, an Audi, when they get married, when they have children, when they get accepted to the college or university of their choice, when they make a team, when they receive an honor, can we rejoice with them? Even if we weren't able to get what we wanted. Do we begrudge what we have? Are we discontent with God's provisions to us, his choices? You gave me the wrong wife. You gave me the wrong children. You gave me the wrong parents, the wrong teacher, the wrong pastor, the wrong elders, the wrong deacons, wrong coaches, the wrong elected officials, car, house, bank account, metabolism, teeth, hair. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Discontent. Like discontent grows, doesn't it? We have to say it's very alive in us. And James is saying that it has this life. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. That's that progression. A desire, a demand, a disappointment, a dam. Are we killing or hating someone else or murdering them in our heart or wishing that God were other than who he is because he didn't give us our desires? James says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's really focusing in to go to the Lord, isn't it? To trust the Lord for his provisions and his timing and his providence. It's difficult, isn't it? How often do we think, if God really loved me, he would give me this? Or if so-and-so really loved me, they would do X, Y, and Z for me. The whole thing is meant to make us God-dependent rather than self-dependent or dependent upon our employers either. We don't have because we don't ask. Come to the Lord. He'll give you everything you need. He won't give you everything you want. Sometimes the things that we want aren't actually good for us. There's a country and western song by Garth Brooks, I think it is, that says, thanks God for unanswered prayer. Isn't that great? So many times we've prayed for something that God knows more than we do about us and what's best for us. And I'm really glad that the Lord didn't answer those prayers. I thought twice in my life before Michelle that I might get married. I'm so glad that I didn't end up with either one of them. Wonderful women who love the Lord, walking with the Lord, both married, happy for them. But I'm glad that that prayer wasn't answered. God knew better. God knew better than I did and than my prayer. So I'm thankful that he didn't answer those prayers and answered in surprising and abundant way later in life. If we say in our heart, I won't be content until X, Y, and Z, whatever X, Y, and Z I submit to you is an idol. I won't be happy until I get that promotion. I won't be happy or content until I get married. I won't be happy or content unless I get all A's. I won't be happy unless my kids are perfectly behaved. I won't be content unless my parents do X, Y, and Z. I won't be whatever. Whatever you put in there, be careful that that's not an idol. Careful that that's not an idol. And that's really what our catechism is getting at, that gateway drug that just starts with this desire, I've got to have it. In the older version of Willy Wonka, there was a character named Veruca. She says, I want an Oompa Loompa, and I want an Oompa Loompa now. And that's how we often are. Whatever we want, we want it, and we want it right now. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience, isn't it? I want patience right now. <laughs> how do we grow in patience, beloved? How do we grow in being long-suffering? How do we grow in trust? by not having everything that we want and every moment we want it in exactly the way we want it. The better things, the eternal things take time. God is too good and too loving to give us everything we want. You as parents in particular know you never give your kids everything they want. You know it wouldn't be good for them. You know it would be good, healthy for them. So much more, our Heavenly Father who knows us and loves us, right? So it's kind of what the catechism teaches about this. Let's look at a character. Let's look at a positive example of someone who did learn contentment in his life, the Apostle Paul. Paul said in Philippians 4, he said, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. 
In every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's the secret? Looking to the person of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Paul is writing this from a Roman prison. He's writing the letter of Philippians from a Roman prison saying, I have learned to be content. Don't you love his candor about needing to learn it? Paul didn't have the special measure of pixie dust that he was just content. He's writing now near the end of his life after 30 years of ministry. He had to learn this. We have to learn this as we are in the crucible of life and as we are conformed more and more to the image of Christ and the joys and sorrows and the disappointments and the joys that we have in our life and that our friends have and that our brothers and sisters in Christ as we go through them, those situations with them. There's a school of contentment. He learned contentment. The source of his contentment is Christ. It's in Christ. He knows that he has everything he needs. Just one chapter earlier in Philippians 3, he had laid out how everything that he had before Christ, he counts as loss, as rubbish, as dung, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and being found in him to have a righteousness not of his own, not one that comes from the law, that one comes through faith in Christ. Everything else ends up in the loss column for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's the source of his contentment. He now knows more and more who he is and whose he is. He knows that this life and these trials and these joys and these sorrows are only temporal and that they pale in comparison to what awaits us on the horizon when the king returns. He cultivated contentment through 30 years of living in union with Christ, of living in communion with brothers and sisters, and he had very difficult circumstances, didn't he? In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul unpacks his life. He was imprisoned numerous times. He's writing from prison here. He had countless beatings. He had several near-death experiences. Five times he was whipped with 39 lashes, just one shy of the legal limit. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. He was in danger of robbers, of false brothers. He had sleepless nights in his anxiety and concern for the church of Christ and for the gospel. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was cold. And he was exposed. If Paul was your friend and you wanted to give him the ultimate ironic name, you'd call him Lucky, right? <laughs> Listen to his life. It's through those things that he learned contentment. It's through those things. In 2 Corinthians 12, 10, Paul says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities, for when I am weak, then he is strong. When I am weak, then I am strong in Christ, is what he's saying. All those other things we recognize as tragedies. They're difficult things and difficult circumstances. He had to learn to be content with them. I don't know if on that very first time he was shipwrecked, he was singing praise songs. <laughs> It was frustrating. 
It's hard. How many of us would even abandon the faith if these things started to happen to us? Paul's circumstances were not the basis of his contentment. He was content in the Lord of his circumstances. His circumstances didn't change. As a matter of fact, Paul one time prayed three times that something would be taken from him. We don't even know what it was. But he just begged and pleaded with the Lord to take something from him. And the Lord said no. And the Lord said no. And the Lord said no. And what that taught Paul was that his grace is sufficient. He may not change my circumstances, but he is with me and he is for me. And he will use those for my good. He's humbled Paul. He's strengthened Paul. Paul is stronger in the faith after 30 years of trials than at the beginning with none. It's how he conformed him more and more to the image of Christ. He learned these things. He learned how to be brought low. He was humiliated many times in humbling situations. But he also had abundance. He had plenty as well. Don't we too? Don't we have seasons of winter and seasons of summer in our life? Don't we have springtime and harvest and drought? Don't we have joys and sorrows and ups and downs? Isn't this exactly what you would expect, living in once Eden in a sin-cursed world? In every and every circumstance, we know that the Lord is in control of these. The Lord is using them for our good, not that they all are good. Don't hear me saying that. Not everything that happens to you is good. Some of it's awful. But the Lord can use everything that he brings into your life for your good. And for your good might be, not might be, is sanctifying you. Conforming you to look more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Paul called at the very beginning to rejoice in the Lord greatly. Again, I say it, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, the one who is in control of the circumstances. He may not change the circumstances. He might but he will be with you in and through them. He will use them in your life. And contentment isn't a stoicism that just says, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. It's not an aloofness, keeping an arm's distance to the things of the world either. It's not a self-sufficiency where we think we're independent of all things. Dennis Johnson in his commentary on Philippians says, it's not a passive acceptance of the status quo but a positive assurance that God has and will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's not just this, yeah, whatever, that's just the way life is. It's a positive assurance that God has and will supply everything that we need according to his riches and glory in this life as well as in the next. Johnson goes on to say, for many of us, the challenge is not to be content when we have nothing. After all, we have never had nothing, but to be content when we have more than what we need, but less than what we want. I submit to you, that's our challenge here at Santee. All of us have much. Some of us have more than others in relative terms, but all of us have far more than one-third of the rest of the world and that most people in human history. It's really difficult for us to be content in abundance, isn't it? Because we're more like Nelson Rockefeller, just a little bit more, 
Just a little more. Just a little more. Just a little more. Then I'll be content. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll go and serve you. Then I'll do this. Then I'll... No, today. Today. Right now. It's difficult, isn't it? He says, I know how to abound. Does that strike you as change? As strange? Some of us say, Lord, give me the chance. I'll show you how content I can be in abundance, right? What might be some of the challenges of living in abundance? It would be a misplaced trust. Not recognizing the giver and focusing more on the gifts. We find our security. Well, we, we do have a nice house. I do have a nice job. I do have a good bank account. What, what do I need the Lord for? All those things came from the Lord in the first place, and all those things are being sustained by the Lord. Beloved, one can be rich and miserable and poor and content. It's not a matter of the things that you have. It's who you have and whose you are and how you look at those things. For those of us who are tempted to rest on our securities, we hear Jesus' words, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. We're called to practice self-control. Proverbs says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eye lights on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. How many times have you thought, Oh, just, just a little more, just that, just that. Michelle and I were really blessed five years into my ministry in Colorado to buy a home, a new home. We're the first ones to ever live in it. It was, it was lovely, and we were so thankful for it. And once you get in there, then you start, well, what are we going to put in here now? And the furniture, and the television, and everything else you want. And then like two to three years into that, well, do we need new carpeting? Would wood floors be better? It's really interesting how that goes, isn't it? And we constantly think about these things. I encourage you to memorize Proverbs 38 through 9. It says, Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. Kids, this is the Goldilocks prayer, isn't it? Just enough, just right. If I have too much, I may be tempted to say, who needs the Lord? If I don't have enough, I may be tempted to curse the Lord and go out and steal. Just what is needful for me. Goldilocks, just enough. Just enough so that I'm content and trusting in the Lord, that I can go about the things to which he has called me to do. Hebrews tells us, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Boy, that's hard, isn't it? Keep your life free from the love of money, from envy. And be content with what you have. Why? Because the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Paul had really a lifetime of being reoriented towards the Lord, didn't he? 
He had thing after thing after thing taken away from him that drove him more and more to trust in and to look to Christ. And so when he had abundance, he said, this is great. I'm going to enjoy a good meal, food, wine, time with friends. When he's in prison, I'm going to write a letter to the church encouraging them. Shipwrecked. The Lord used it to get him where he needed to go. He was able to see these things. He says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And this has been one of the most tortured verses in Scripture by people twisting it. We see it on many athletes' eyes or their arms, meaning I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can throw the 70-yard bomb. I can hit a hole-in-one every time. It's not talking about those things. I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. What things? It's not a blank check for whatever we want to do. It's not to do impossible feats or deeds. The Christian is not omnicompetent in everything. The all things is linked with whatever situations in every circumstance. I can trust. I can love. I can serve. I can grow. All of those things. Through Christ who strengthens me. Not if I do these things, if I try really hard and I'm content, then the Lord. No, because the Lord. Because the Lord loves you, because the Lord died for you, because the Lord dwells within you through his spirit, now you can begin to do those things. You can learn to be content in the circumstances of your life. You can trust him. You can love him. You can serve him. You can grow. You can do all things through him who strengthens you. It's not strengthening yourself so that you have these things. It's going and relying on him, recognizing you are God-dependent for everything. Our prayers are a prayer of dependency to the Lord. Our daily bread, the forgiveness of our sins. Don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Your kingdom come. It's dependency upon the Lord. It's reorienting and directing us that we are strengthened through him, Christ, who loves us, who died for us, who rose again for us, who is interceding for us, who gave us his Holy Spirit. It's through him. And Paul recognized this. Paul learned this. He's a positive example of one who has learned contentment. And so now let's look to Christ. We heard what the catechism said about contentment. We heard about it lived out in Paul's life. And now we'll look at Christ. Turn, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, Paul wrote this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. That's what we said earlier. It's not wrong to want things. You can look to your own interests, but not only your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what he's going to go on to say isn't an achievement that you do. It's not if you do these things, then you'll have the mind of Christ. It's not the finishing line. It's the starting gate. 
You have this mind in Christ. This is yours now. This is who you are. This is telling you an indicative about who you are in Christ Jesus and who we are together. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that the name of, I'm sorry, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here we really get a glimpse of how the cross appeared from all eternity to the one who was to be crucified upon it, according to one theologian. That lowliness of mind, the affair of Christ's heart to empty himself and to humble himself, to come and be a servant. He's in the form of God, and he did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped. What that means is, in the form of means he's the exact imprint or image of God. He is God. The eternal Son of God becomes the incarnate Son of God. He did not account his equality something to be grasped or to held on to so tightly. And sometimes people get really tripped up by this passage wondering what characteristics did Jesus let go of to, to become human? None. Not one. He was God. What it means by emptying himself isn't that getting rid of any of his God qualities or Godness, but adding to humanity. It's a subtraction by addition. He emptied himself, the eternal God, by becoming human. By entering into the fray, he humbled himself and he came and he entered into our sin, into our misery. Into the reality of having discontentment that he never had before. Jesus experienced hunger. Jesus experienced thirst. Jesus was beaten and betrayed. Jesus was mocked. Jesus experienced all of these things with us, and never once did he complain. Never once was he discontent. He was on his way to the cross to pay the penalty for all of our envy, all of our griping. All of our discontentment. Jesus was on the cross to pay the penalty for that. And positively, his life of being content in all things is credited to our account as if we had done it ourselves. That's remarkable to think about. Jesus' life was lived from womb to tomb in humble submission to the Father. Not my will, but thy be done. Not my will, but thy be done. Not my will, but thine be done. The first Adam in the garden reached out to take something that wasn't his. There's only one thing forbidden from him in the garden. He had a whole beautiful and wonderful life provided for abundantly by God. And was in communion and fellowship with God. Had a beautiful wife. Had a wonderful relationship. Vocation. Plenty. And God said, just don't eat of that one tree. And the first Adam reached out and grasped and took something that didn't belong to him. 
He envied. It looked good to the eyes. I want it. God's stingy. He's holding back something from me. I'm going to take it. And he plunged himself and all of humanity into ruin. And the second Adam came. And all the things that he did have, he said, I'm going to go. I'm going to let go. And I'm going to come. He didn't count equality a thing to be grasped, but came. Emptying himself, not of any characteristics of God, but emptying himself by adding to humanity. Fallen and sinful humanity and coming into our place. We can certainly look to the example of Jesus to learn contentment. But beyond that, before that, more importantly, beloved, as our substitute in our place. Jesus Christ was obedient to the point of death and death on a cross for our envy, for our discontent. And Jesus Christ lived a life of perfect obedience on our stead. He asked God for things. He asked the Father, if there's any way to take this cup from me, please do. But not my will, but thine. Where we would have dug in and said, I want an Oompa Loompa and I want it now. He said, I want this, I desire this, but not my will, but thine. And that obedience is credited to our account as if we had done it. Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and he didn't covet food. He submitted himself to the word and provision of his fathers. He didn't covet power. He submitted himself to the word and the provisions of his father. He didn't covet glory. He submitted himself to the provisions of the Father. And on the cross, his last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it's in him. It's in Christ submitting himself willingly to the spirit that we have our contentment, that we have our freedom. To even to be able to pursue things that we do want. But to keep them more with an open hand. If you're hanging on to it like this, that'll be problematic for you and others. But I would like this. Feel free to run after a job or a relationship or a career or a vocation or an avocation or something. But don't have it so tight that it's, if I don't get that, then I'm going to be angry at God or I'm going to be resentful. I'm going to curse someone or I'm going to hurt someone or I won't be content unless I get it. Go and pursue it. Do those things. Beloved, Jesus was punished for our coveting, for our envy, for our grumbling, for our discontentment, and he perfectly was content in all circumstances. Jesus does not merely serve as an example of a contented person, but he himself is the source of our contentment. He is the fountainhead of our peace. We look to him not so much for the gifts That he gives, but for the gift giver himself. What is your only comfort in life and in death, beloved? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and in death and want and in plenty to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who is fully satisfied for all of my sins. And I am his now and forever. We're abiding in him. We're abiding in his promises. We're abiding in his presence. Whether I have a little or whether I have a lot, the Lord is the strength and portion of my heart.
He is actually our inheritance. You may not have the inheritance you want on earth right now, but you have an inheritance unimaginable. And he's coming soon. Just a little longer. Look to him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We confess that we often have inordinate desires and are discontent with your ways and your purposes and your gifts to us. We ask that you would forgive us of those. We ask that you would cleanse us and wash us. I pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our mind. And Father, we thank you that you made us desiring beings, and I pray that you would shape our desires to desire those things which are holy and true and beautiful and good, that bring you glory and that bring good to our neighbors. I pray that you would help us to be honest about these things. I pray, Father, that you would give us that which is needful for us. Not too much where we would begin to think that we did it on our own or we don't need you, or not too little that we would grumble or complain or begrudge you or steal, but enough, our daily bread. And may it be sufficient, knowing that you are all-sufficient and that you provide for us everything that we need for faith and for life in Christ. It is in his name and washed in his blood, clothed in his robe of righteousness and indwelt by your spirit that we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen.